What do you think of when you hear the term artificial intelligence? Well, that's a big question. Not natural. Computer advancement? How it's going to take over the world? <laughs> Something that can be used for good and bad, depending on how you use it. Like online, you have artists that are upset that people are making songs in their voice and in their name. There was one show that I didn't watch because the intro was done by AI. So like ChatGPT, I know lots of people use it. I honestly don't use it, don't trust it. I don't feel like I can get that much efficiency out of it. I appreciate all that it gives to us on a daily basis, but I'm kind of afraid of potential possibilities. I'm not really sure the outcome, but I guess it'll be an adventure getting there, huh? It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. And as far as I know, at least, nothing that will happen over the next hour has been generated by artificial intelligence. I promise. I think. So, artificial intelligence. Until quite recently, it seemed like the phrase could be used as a sort of inkblot test. Whether it made you feel excited or terrified or blasé probably said something about your relationship to the digital age more broadly. I will out myself as among the terrified. I'm skeptical of tech companies in the first place, and I grew up watching The Terminator, so I feel like I know how this movie unfolds. Anyway, like I said, until quite recently, this felt like just a fun parlor game. Throw out art- artificial intelligence and see how we each react. But now, this doesn't feel like a game anymore. After more than a decade of tech billionaires jockeying to control whatever market AI generates, the fanciful technology has grown quite real, and a whole lot more people are probably in that terrified camp. But my guest this week wants us to think less about the Terminator and more about very real-world and present-tense threats. Dr. Joy Bolamwini is a computer scientist whose groundbreaking research helped establish the ways in which tech products both reinforce and react to our existing biases around race, gender, and more. She's the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, which is which uses both research and art to educate us all about technology. And in a new book, she tells the story of her research and her advocacy and her life. The book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. And she joins me now to talk about it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Bolamwini. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And so you began your research on bias in AI in 2016. Uh, You've since become very well known for this work, and you even advised the White House on its AI policy, as I gather. But you kind of came at this, I want to say by accident, while doing a fun project in graduate school. Can, Can you tell us the story of that project and what you discovered that set you on this path? Uh, Yes. So I was very excited to be at MIT Media Lab, also known as the Future Factory, trying my hand at making the future. So I was working on an art installation that was an interactive mirror. And the idea was you would look into this mirror and and it, it would actually project onto your reflection um, anything you would like. So you could look like a lion, 
I wanted to look like Serena Williams. So I had that <laughs> I as a digital, you know, greatest of all time. Why not? Why not? Maybe Coco Goff now, you know, choose your favorite <laughs> athlete. So anyhow, as I was working um, on this project, I wanted this digital filter to follow my face in this interactive mirror I was making. And so that's where AI comes into play. Hmm. I decided to get some face uh, tracking uh, software. So when I moved my face in the mirror, Serena's face would follow me too. Okay. The problem happened is that the software I downloaded to do this didn't actually detect my face that consistently until I put on a white mask. So my dark skin face not detected consistently. This lifeless white mask detected almost instantaneously wow. and in having that experience of in a sense coding in white face at what's meant to be this epicenter of innovation at MIT that's when I came to face with uh, what I now call the coded gaze of just this questioning are AI systems neutral that would have been my assumption to begin with. But this experience really led me to start exploring that question more. I have to ask, and so I, I should say on the cover of your of your new book, uh, you, it's a picture of you holding a white mask. And I have to ask, what made you think of the mask when you were in that moment? What made you think, huh, maybe if I put on this mask? That's such a great question. I was around Halloween time. So I happened to have a white mask because I had gone to a party and I thought, oh, let me have the mask for the party. And so it just happened to be left over uh, from the party. And in fact, before I even tried the white mask, what made me think maybe let me try a white mask is I drew a face on my palm. So just like a cartoony smiley face. And the face on my palm was detected when I held it up to the camera. So once that happened, <laughs> like anything like, huh. is up, anything <laughs> is up for grabs. And uh, literally the mask was right there. So I thought, what why not? Let's just see. I wonder, I mean, this was obviously such a provocation because so much uh, uh, has happened from that moment for you um, and for all of us, given your research. Uh, but I, I wonder what that, felt like in that moment. I mean, to be sitting there thinking, ooh, I want to look like Serena and then and not be recognized, but put on a white mask and be recognized. I, I just wonder about that moment for you emotionally. At, at first it was, I was in this kind of debugging mode, right? So it's not working. So now it's exploratory. So that's when I draw the face, like the face on my hand, that was cute. The white <laughs> mask, not so Now not you're getting so, a little more frustrated, right? Not so cute. Like, wait a minute, hold on. I mean, uh, Prince Fanon already said it, black skin, white mask, but it was the, like, it was not lost on me, the irony of being in a white mask and also a place that was very whitewashed, mm -hmm. you know, at the time. So I was amused, fascinated, frustrated, all of those things at once. Yeah, yeah. In, in the book, you talk about your experiences when you first started bringing up this idea that, hey, maybe, you know, AI doesn't quite detect darker skin. And you said one comment you immediately started getting was algorithms are math, math isn't biased. 
And and you said when you started this research, you kind of wanted that to be true. Yeah. Why? Why did you want that to be true? Well, I think we have to make a differentiation with what we're talking about when we're looking at various types of AI systems, and in particular, the types of AI systems um, that I was looking at detecting a human face than trying to guess the gender of the face and all of that. Yes, please help me out because uh, I am out of my depth. So help me out. Help me understand this. Sure. So these types of AI systems that have been come really popular as of late are based on this approach of machine learning. And so the idea of machine learning is instead of trying to explicitly write code for every single way a human face could potentially look like in a digital photo, which is really hard to do and people have tried and it didn't work as well. The alternative was, what about we teach the machine to recognize the pattern of a face? And to teach that pattern, we'll have a data set of faces. So this is where bias comes in. Mm. So think of the data set as the experience of the world. So if you have data sets that are largely of lighter skinned individuals, data sets that are largely of men, then that machine learning system is going to have very limited experience. And so that's where the bias comes in because we are creating AI systems that are essentially pattern recognizers and pattern producers. And then we're feeding them patterns that are based on a skewed representation of the world. So I'm not saying one plus one doesn't equal two, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, I'm saying the ways in which we're applying algorithms to um, various AI applications introduces bias throughout the entire process. That it's that, that, that the bias comes from the jump, not because of the math itself. Uh, you, you use the phrase, I think you made reference to the coded gaze uh, uh, earlier in our conversation, and that's a, that's a phrase that you have coined. Uh, it comes up in the book. You've talked about it a lot. Just introduce that phrase to, to, to folks. What is it, and, and why do you choose that phrasing? Yes. So the term the coded gaze is inspired by cousin concepts like the male gaze, which was developed, um, you know, by uh, media scholars and art scholars talking about the ways in which uh, women are depicted, um, whether in film or even uh, fine art, is often to please a male uh, viewer. And there's also this notion of the white gaze. Uh, When you're thinking about uh, storytelling, who is centered, uh, which stories are deemed to matter. And so all of that comes down to who gets the power to choose, who gets the power to prioritize. So when I was thinking about the coded gaze, this was thinking through who has the power to shape the technologies that shapes our lives. And in having that power, whose priorities are embedded as well as whose prejudices are embedded within that technology. And so that's where this concept of the coded gaze emerges. And before we take a break, because I think it'll be useful for the conversation that goes forward, you also have the phrase X-coded. Quickly, what is that and how is it different different from from the coded gaze? So the coded gaze leads to the X-coded, and the X-coded is anyone who was harmed by an AI system. So that means no one is immune from experiencing uh, AI harm. So that 
I like to make up terms. Excluded <laughs> sounded like a good one. So you could be excluded. You could be um, uh, exploited right um in other ways as well so that's where x-coded comes from anybody anybody who's been harmed by the coded gaze in the first place absolutely okay well we need to take a break hold those terms for when i come back this is notes from america i'm talking with dr joy bolamwini about her new book unmasking ai my mission to protect what is human in a world of machines and when we come back we can take your calls You can call or send a text message with questions about artificial intelligence, in particular, how it interacts with our existing biases. We'll take your calls and read some poetry after a break. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with computer scientist Dr. Joy Bolamwini about artificial intelligence, how it has been shaped by our biases around race and gender and more, and how it could reinforce those biases into the future. Her new book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. And as we talk, we can take your questions about AI, particularly as it relates to Dr. Bolamwini's research on bias. You can call us or you can send us a text message. And Dr. Bolamwini, you bring art into your work as a computer scientist, which is, you know, just a fun thing to even say out loud, art and computer science. Uh, But you're a poet. You go by the title Poet of Code. And you have one poem in particular that I'm uh, hoping you can read for us a little bit of. It's, It's called AI, Ain't I a Woman? Could you read that for us? Oh, yes. I'm happy to elevate art in this space and do a reading of uh, AI Ain't I a Woman. So here we go. My heart smiles as I bask in their legacies, knowing their lives have altered many destinies. In her eyes, I see my mother's poise. In her face, I glimpse my auntie's grace. In this case of deja vu, a 19th century question comes into view. In a time when Sojourner Truth asked... Ain't I a woman? Today we pose this question to new powers, making bets on artificial intelligence hope towers. The Amazonians peek through windows blocking deep blues as faces increment scars, old burns, new urns, collecting data chronicling our past, often forgetting to deal with gender, race, and class. Again, I ask, ain't I a woman? Face by face, the answers seem uncertain. Young and old, proud icons are dismissed. Can machines ever see my queens as I view them? Can machines ever see our grandmothers as we knew them? Mm. That poem, that's AI, Ain't I a Woman? It's based on Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman poem. Uh, And you wrote that after realizing, as we talked about, facial recognition technologies are most inaccurate when used by women with dark complexions, which is to say that the bias you found was both about skin tone and gender. Can you tell me about that intersection? 
Uh, that's such a good point. One of the big contributions of my research uh, when it came out was showing the importance of looking at the intersections of skin type and gender. And so studies before really hadn't taken a look at that intersection um, in such an explicit way to say intersectionality uh, matters. And what I realized, though, with the research I had published was that the performance metrics of saying, oh, OK, this uh, AI system from IBM or Microsoft and then later on Amazon uh, might have, I don't know, zero to two percent error rates on lighter skinned men, but maybe up to 34 you know, percent error rates on darker uh, skinned uh, women, uh, it was very clinical, right? Mm -hmm. Here are the numbers. So I wanted to move from the performance metrics to the performance arts to ask, well, what does that mean? What does that feel like? So I started testing the faces of people like Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, um, Serena Williams, you know, and they were misclassified as men. Uh, Ida B. Wells, her photo was described as a, a boy in a hat wow. and also by uh, IBM as a coon skin cap. Wow. And so as I was looking at these sorts of um, depictions and descriptions, Google's uh, describing Sojourner Truth as a clean shaven old man. That is when the notion of AI ain't I a woman came to be. So I was bringing in uh, historic figures. Ida B. Wells, data science pioneer, hanging facts, stacking stats on the lynching of humanity, teaching truths hidden in data, each entry and omission, a person worthy of respect. Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed, the first Black congresswoman, but not the first to be misunderstood by machines well-versed in data-driven mistakes. Michelle Obama, unabashed and unafraid to wear her crown of history, yet her crown seems a mystery to systems unsure of her hair, a wig, a buffon, a toupee, maybe not, are there no words for our braids and our locks? As I'm saying each of those phrases, mm. what you're not, you know, what you can't see just through the words are the examples of each of their faces being misread, being misclassified, being denigrated. And we can get into that terminology itself, mm -hmm. right, by AI systems from some of the biggest companies out there, right? You had Amazon labeling Oprah male. This is not a, a case where you can see it, say, oh, well, we didn't have enough photos of Oprah. We didn't have <laughs> enough, right? Or when it came to Michelle Obama, her childhood photo describing her hair as a toupee. So in the book, I write about how these uh, algorithmic insults reminded me of the real world insults, mm -hmm. you know, that um, Black women uh, face. And so really the... Uh, idea for doing AI ain't I a woman that is yes the spoken word that you heard but also these powerful examples that you can't unsee yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. uh, while it's going um, was to humanize uh, the impact of some of these uh, AI systems uh, gone awry so it became more than an academic exercise. People respond to the poetry differently, I imagine, than than the research when, when you're presenting it. It is interesting because I remember sharing AI Ain't I a Woman. Um, actually, 
uh, in the EU, um, in Brussels, Belgium, is when I uh, first shared it. And later on, it was actually shared with EU uh, defense ministers ahead of a conversation on lethal uh, autonomous weapons. And I shared screenshots, you know, how mentioning Michelle Obama being misclassified, Oprah being misclassified, Serena being misclassified. That's in the congressional record for hearings uh, that I did around um, bias in facial recognition technologies, gender classification, um, and also thinking about our civil rights when it comes to uh, biometrics, like facial recognition being used. And so what I saw was an opportunity to bring the art and the research together. Mm -hmm. So I would have the numbers from IBM or Microsoft or Amazon or others, right? And then I would have these arresting photos as well to go with it. We're, we're going to talk in some detail about some of the specific ways in which this bias shows up uh, in, in that you talked about in your book. But just on a fundamental level, the kind of uh, misrepresentation you're talking about, why does that matter? You know, I mean, uh, it, it, if it's, it, it's a repeating what we're seeing in real life, um, the same kind of misrepresentation we're seeing in real life, that same kind of denigration, uh, it seems like a basic question, but to spell out for people why that matters that that's showing up in technology. Well, I think it's really interesting to look at generative AI systems. And so when I was doing this research, 2016, 17, 18, so forth, this was before this big release of generative AI systems exploding that we saw a lot of in this year uh, with ChatGPT, with things like MidJourney or Dolly, where you can put in uh, text prompt and get out an image, uh, for example. And so to your earlier point, right, isn't this just reflecting the status quo? I used to think we were looking at a mirror, but what I've come to see is we're actually looking at a kaleidoscope of distortion. And what I mean by that, I'll use an example that Bloomberg News did. They uh, decided to test uh, some text-to-image generators. And so what they did is they gave text prompts of high-paying jobs and low-paying jobs. So think CEO, high-paying job. Think architect, high-paying job. Low-paying job, social worker, fast food worker, right? And then they also did criminal stereotypes, uh, drug dealer, uh, terrorist. So maybe not so surprising, right? When it came to the high paying jobs, who do you think uh, the representation for high paying jobs were? Hmm. I guess white men. Ding, ding, you are <laughs> correct. You are correct. All right. And then when it came for low paying jobs, who do you think the representation? I'm going to guess dark skinned women. People of color more broadly, women showed up there. So we were, we're see, we were seeing some diversity just in a particular pocket. And um, when it came to representations of criminal stereotypes, dark-skinned men were um, there. Uh, uh, and what I wanted to point out with this particular study to the distortion part, let's take architect. In the U.S., 
women are around 34% of architects, right? So if you say the status quo isn't great, you know, but there was some progress. When they put in the prompt for architect, women were depicted as architects less than around 3% of the time. So this technology that's positioned as carrying us into the future is actually reversing the hard-fought progress that was already made. And the other part that we have to consider as well is oftentimes when outputs come from computers, they are assumed to be more objective, even when study after study and all of this research shows that's not necessarily the case. Right, right. Well, speaking of reversing the other way, uh, a straightforward listener question, the text message from one of our listeners is, can this bias you're describing be reprogrammed? Can AI be reprogrammed so that this bias doesn't exist? I often hear people asking about bias elimination, and I think of it more as bias mitigation. Because as long as humans are involved, there's going to be some sort of bias, even the types of AI systems that are imagined and made in the world. That design component is influenced by those who have the power to say these are the systems we're going uh, to create uh, in the first place. That being said, there is certainly a lot more that can be done to make sure that the systems are more equitable. So let's say you are excited about using AI for healthcare in some domain. It is a, it is so crucial that you don't just assume because you have a good intention with using AI in that space, it's going to work well for everybody. You actually have to go in and be very rigorous with your uh, data collection and be very rigorous with the testing of those systems to make sure that they do what you think they're going to do um, instead of just hoping they deliver on the promise uh, untested. So I think it's important to uh, note that bias mitigation is possible. Bias elimination, I usually say, unless if you get rid of the people, you're probably not going to get rid of bias (laughs) completely. But there's another element that I think is really important for um, all of your listeners to be thinking about which is bias is just part of the concern, particularly when we're talking about the ways in which AI can be harmful. So let's take facial recognition technologies as an example. Let's say we had perfect, completely accurate facial recognition, which we do not, does not exist. But even if we had that, now you have the tools for mass surveillance. Yeah. So how well these systems work is part of the analysis, but how these systems are being used is just as important. So accurate systems can be abused and it can be very tempting to just think, okay, we'll make the systems more accurate and we have Uh done our job by looking at it from just a technical lens. But you have to think about its societal impact and hence the socio-technical lens. And so then you have to back up and say, should these systems even exist or should they be applied in these ways in the first place? I want to bring in a caller who I think has a question uh, along these lines. Wendy from Springfield, New Jersey. Wendy, welcome to the show. Yes. um, Just what you were just talking about, 
we want these systems not to recognize us, and I don't know the details, but a black man, uh, let's say he lived in New York, um, he was uh, accused of having stolen a car in, I can't remember what state it was, let's say I'm making up the state so this thing actually happened, in Louisiana, and he was put in jail because AI identified his face as, as the face of the person who had done this. Well, his lawyer went to the state, looked at the man, said, well, they do look alike. It's a similar face. But this man was in jail for a week. It's what you were just talking about. And let's say it was accurate, so we could accurately be surveilled. Do we want this? Yeah. Do we want to be recognized by these machines? And, of course, the fact that he was in a different state and couldn't possibly have done this crime at the time because he was in a different state, they, didn't, they, didn't, they discounted that and said, well, the computer identified him, so it must be, it must be right. Thank you, Wendy. And can can we get at? So we're going to have to go to a break here in a couple of minutes. And I know you've got a a, a really important story uh, in your book about the ways in which law enforcement has misused this technology. But what about on just that fundamental question of like, do we want this in the first place? I mean, do how do you answer that, Doctor Bolamwini? Uh, uh, that just like whether it's a good idea at all, whether or not it can be done right. So. In the book, I talk about red lines, and a big red line for me is the use of face surveillance, which isn't just facial recognition, detecting an individual like Randall Reed, the example you're talking about, a man in Georgia being uh, falsely accused for a crime in uh, Louisiana. He's among the ex-coded. You also have people like Portia Woodruff arrested eight months pregnant for a carjacking she did not commit. She reported having contractions in the holding cell. She was arrested by the same police department in 2023 that arrested Robert Williams in 2020 in front of his two young daughters, all due to uh, facial recognition, misidentification. To me, the answer isn't let's make this technology more accurate for police to use. The answer is police should not be using facial recognition technology, not just because it's discriminatory, which it is, but also because of the privacy and surveillance implications of its use and the abuse of these systems as well. So I do absolutely believe there should be red lines on the use of facial recognition technologies for me when it is used in the context of surveillance, when it's used in the context of policing, when it's used in the context of weapons. Those are clear red lines. People should also know that they can opt out of these types of systems. For example, when the TSA adopts facial recognition and doesn't really let people know they can opt out even though you have a right to. That I'm going to stop you there wrong. because I really want to learn more about that. But we've got to take a break. I'm talking with Dr. Joy Bolamwini about her new book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. Listeners, we can take your questions and uh, uh, either by phone call or text any questions about AI, particularly as they relate to Dr. Joy Bolomwini's research on bias. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. My name is Rahima, and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. 
Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by computer scientist Dr. Joy Bolamwini, author of the book Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What's Human in a World of Machines. She's also the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. And we are taking your calls. If you have a question about AI, you can call us or you can send us a text message with questions about AI, and particularly as they relate to Dr. Bolamwini's research on bias. Uh, And you were just about, you, you had begun talking about the TSA um, as one of the really concrete examples of a place where we encounter AI and uh, things are a little upside down. So tell, explain to me what happens around AI at, at, at TS, at when, we, when we encounter TSA and what we should know uh, as individuals who are, who are going through those lines. Got it. So over the last uh, few years, the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, as you all know, have been expanding their use of facial recognition uh, technologies. Last we checked, they were at around 25 airports across the United States, and they have uh, plans to expand it to 400 uh, airports. And essentially what they're doing is at the checkpoint, right, when you're about to go take off your shoes for even more screenings, <laughs> right, <laughs> instead of checking your ID and then looking at your face, what they're now doing is saying, look into the camera, step up, look into the camera, right? And this is supposedly a pilot program that's supposedly uh, voluntary. We actually did a campaign this summer asking people about their experiences. Did they even notice that there was uh, facial recognition going to be used or did it just happen to come upon them (laughs) once they got to the front of the line? Was there clear signage? Were they even asked if they could opt uh, out? And what we learned was the majority of people didn't even know that they had the right to opt out. And in fact, on the TSA's own website, the whole thing is supposed to be opt-in in in the first place. But what we were seeing time and time again from the uh, hundreds of reports we received were that people felt they couldn't say no, or they didn't know they had that option to say no. So if I say no as a person of color, already under scrutiny, already with time pressure, already with the economic pressure of having gotten this ticket. If I say, if I don't comply, will I fly? Right. You know? And so you have this, uh, scenario. Exactly. I mean, what do, what do you advise? I mean, there's so many situations like that where sure, technically I could say no, but it doesn't feel like a real option. And what am I supposed to do in that moment? I mean, what, 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 what is your advice for us in that moment? I think it really depends on your own circumstances to know what risk you are able to take. I would say those who are more privileged should use that privilege to say no. 
Um, and I also think it's not just on individuals to resist uh, these types of uses of uh, facial recognition. And so this is actually why uh, we were really encouraged to see the introduction of a bill that says the TSA should not use facial recognition uh, at airports because we do need at the end of the day federal protections so that it's not on the individual to feel pressured to go against this huge system. So I would say you have to have a sense, right, of the risk that you are willing um, uh, to take on. For the most part, from what we've heard reported from those who have said no, they're generally able to opt out once they assert that they know they can opt out. It's just most people don't know in the first place. So I do encourage people to exercise that right to refusal, but I don't think you should beat yourself up if you look around and you say, mm, this might make <laughs> this my is day not a the moment. <laughs> right, you know. Right. Uh, let's go to Stephanie in Manhattan. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm a financial advisor, and I just want to add in, sort of extend the concern that you all are expressing so, so articulately. What I see on the business channels is nothing, not a word, not a peep about the, the privacy aspect of this new technology. And I'll give you a really concrete example because um, every company comes on and says, oh, you know, generative AI, it's their new buzzword, right? Um, I think it's very realistic that we would see AI being used for, you know, um, mortgage application decisions. And we've already been through many, many chapters of, you know, people of color being discriminated in the mortgage right, arena right. or other arenas for financial products. And when I say not a peep, I mean, not a, not even 15 seconds about these companies are under the following regulations to use AI in a responsible manner to not compound and, and these do, lending do, discriminations that already exist. And Stephanie, do you mean that not a peep in the sense of like people aren't even thinking about it or not a peep in, in the sense people can't be bothered? Both. I mean, mm. the, 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 if you watch, let me put it this way: if you watch the business channels all day, there's no discrimination. There's no privacy concerns. Generative AI is all good. It's all rosy. It's all gonna, you know, Got it. promote positive outcomes for society. And I'm listening to this, going, "Hey, wait a minute! This is going to compound discrimination because yeah. humans are involved." And yeah. you are ex explaining this. Ex extremely well. Yeah. Um, I got it. Nothing. I'm, I'm going to stop what? you there, Stephanie, and thank you for that. It, Dr. Bolawimi, what what about in the financial sector? What are, are, are there some examples that you can think of that we need to be worried about? Absolutely. I mean, the markup, uh, great uh, investigative data-driven uh, publication, they did an investigation in 2021 that showed that there was a bias hidden in mortgage approval algorithms and that loan applicants of color were 40 to 80 percent more likely to be denied um, the mortgage application than their uh, white 
counterparts and that in specific metro areas, the disparity was greater than 250%. Uh, and so we're talking about people who ha- basically have uh, the same stats coming up, right? Mm-hmm. So they have the same level of income and so forth. And the difference was uh, race. And so we are already um, uh, seeing this impact uh, on the financial side. Actually, uh, Steve Wozniak there made some headlines when he was applying for uh, credit and his uh, wife was also applying for a credit and her being a woman, she was not given the same amount, even though they had the same assets nice. because it was um, all shared. So I would just underscore that those concerns are valid. The numbers are there to uh, back it up. And this is precisely why I wrote the book Unmasking AI, because oftentimes we hear about the promise without addressing uh, the peril. And okay. so the point of the book was to say, here's the other side of it. Yeah. Let's go to Zinnia in Barrie, Vermont. Zinnia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, one thing that is already happening with uh, machines as intermediaries in damage to humans that's made worse by AI, and I'm talking about sort of, uh, oh, we didn't do it. It was the algorithm. It's a removal of responsibility whether you're bombing in Vietnam or in in Gaza, pilots are not seen as personally responsibility for the bombs that they've dropped because it was done by a machine. Mm. And and, uh, that, uh, oh, thousands of people are being killed in Gaza by airstrikes, Uh, whereas graphic descriptions of Israelis killed uh, in October... I mean, yes, that was horrible, but it's no less horrible if someone is maimed or killed by a quote-unquote airstrike. But somehow this, and I see this as being made, being intensified, this removal of responsibility if there's a machine intermediary, that if it's a computer machine, I, I, artificial I think... intelligence, responsibility can be diluted if not entirely eliminated. Thank you, Zinnia. I think I got that. And uh, Dr. Bolamwini, you have written about and talked about uh, AI in the context of war. And I gather, actually, that you wrote a poem this very morning uh, about um, AI and and war. Uh, would you is it, would you want to re- read that for us and tell us what tell us about it? Ah, uh, sure. Uh- And this goes to some of the concerns that were just expressed by the caller now. And so the name of this fresh poem is called Precisely Who Will Die. Some say AI is an existential risk. We see AI is an exterminating reality, accelerating annihilation, augmenting destruction, I heard of a new gospel, delivering death with the promise of precision, the code name for an old aim to target your enemy, the other, reduced to rubble. Faces erased, names displaced, as the drones carry on in a formation that spells last shadow. AI wars, 
first fought at the doors of our neighbors. Next, the bombs drop on your private chambers. Is is the use of drones, is that the primary way in which you see AI showing up in, in warfare? You Not only do you have um, the use of drones, right, but you also have the use of AI to select targets um, to be bombed uh, as well. And the to the point of when you take the human away and there is almost the sense of moral outsourcing, the consequences of war and that human toll and that human impact become abstracted, almost like a video game. And I open the book, Unmasking AI, talking about lethal autonomous weapons. And later on, I talk about the campaign to stop killer robots, essentially saying that if we give machines that kill decision, it further dehumanizes individuals in conflict uh, situations. And so we are seeing AI being used for surveillance, and that surveillance can then be used in policing. It can be used um, in war. We're seeing facial recognition and biometrics being integrated into different types of weapon systems. So now think of a drone with a camera and a gun. Now add some facial recognition. Accurate or not accurate, you're causing damage. Right, right. It sort of related to this, Alec uh, texts, uh, one of our listeners, Alec texts to ask, in general, I'm curious about the international context for facial recognition. Um, So beyond uh, warfare, are there other ways in which it has international implications that you're thinking about? I think the big one is borders, right? And so you'll see that um, in some cases, asylum seekers, uh, uh, this happened on the U.S. border where African and Haitian uh, asylum seekers were actually made to use a particular app uh, that used facial recognition and it was not able to verify their faces in the first place. So you already had this uh, technical um, barrier. Um, so I, I do think about migration uh, as an area we see um, facial recognition uh, systems uh, being uh, used, uh, borders all around uh, the world, for sure. As as we start to, to wrap up, I, I do want to, you've made a couple of references to what can be done beyond the individual level, and I want to spend some time on that. Um, uh, earlier this year, the White House announced that several big companies, Microsoft, Google, OpenAI, uh, signed a voluntary pledge where they committed to a number of things that included, uh, quote, prioritizing research on societal risks of AI, including around discrimination and privacy. You've said that is not enough. Why? We don't need blue ribbon commissions to tell us that there is uh, bias and discrimination in AI systems. I think that research is important and it should continue. That's research that uh, can happen at tech companies, but needs to happen in organizations that are independent of the influence of tech companies. We've seen many AI ethics teams become uh, decommissioned or otherwise expelled. Um, Also, voluntary commitments and self-regulation are not enough. So I was very encouraged to see the executive order that came out um, a little uh, later in the year 
because that actually then starts moving towards uh, federal shifts that have teeth. And the, that executive order was actually based on a blueprint for an AI uh, bill of rights that says people will have protection from algorithmic discrimination, that these systems have to be shown to be safe and effective. And I think very importantly, that there should be alternative pathways, like with the TSA situation. The default isn't I have to surrender my face and give up my valuable biometric data uh, just to fly. What about at the state level? So there's an executive order from the White House that sort of get things started. Um, There's a bill you mentioned earlier circulating in Congress. What about action at the state level? So we see that state level laws make a difference. So, for example, in Illinois, there is BIPA, the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And because of that law, um, Facebook actually uh, entered into a $650 million settlement um, for violating BIPA in the state of Illinois. And that came because of all of the faces that were used from the Facebook platform to train their facial recognition uh, systems. Mm. So probably unknown to you when you were tagging your friends' faces and other things, you could have been contributing, <laughs> right, you know, to mm. their uh, AI capabilities. And that was not done with um, explicit uh, consent. We've seen time and time again where laws exist. They are a deterrent because not many companies want to have to do the $650 million (laughs) settlement, as you might um, imagine. And afterwards, they deleted over a billion uh, face prints. And so laws absolutely Mm. uh, matter. And we've also seen many wins in the local uh, level, particularly putting uh, restrictions on police use of facial recognition. Some of those campaigns have used uh, the research of the Algorithmic Justice League and others. The problem we, is we don't want it to be you have to live in the right state or the right city. Yep, <laughs> it yep. should be protections for everyone. We will have to stop there. Dr. Joy Bolamwini is an AI researcher, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and poet of code. Her latest book, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines is available now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and at Notes with Kai on Instagram. Theme music and sound design by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gabber, Rahima Nasa, David Norville, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Our executive producer is Andre Robert Lee, and I am Kai Wright. Thank you so much for joining us. 